Thanks, Val. As I said, we are in the middle of a series in the book of Ezekiel, um, and we're up to part six this week. And this week, we're diving into Ezekiel 18. It's always best if you, if you have the word open there in front of you, um, if you can follow along. And the, <clears throat> the catalyst for Ezekiel 18 is a proverb. That's, that's a catalyst for Ezekiel 18. It's a proverb. And dictionary.com, easiest, the only dictionary I have access to, actually, dictionary.com defines a proverb as a short popular saying that expresses effectively some general truth or useful thought. And so here are some examples from around the world. You ready? From Africa. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. From Italy, after the game, the king and the pawn go into the same box. From China, it's better to light a candle than curse a darkness. From Turkey, measure a thousand times and cut once. And finally, from Australia, a platypus is a duck designed by a committee. Being a Presbyterian, I appreciate that. But generally, they are actually helpful, and generally they are, they are true. But, but what if a proverb came to be that was tragically mistaken? Well, that's, that's a catalyst for Ezekiel 18, where God unravels and he debunks a common proverb that was tragically mistaken. Verses 1 and 2, The word of the Lord came to me, what do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel, that the parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge? And the gist of that is this. A children suffer for the sins or the stupidity of their parents. That's the gist of it. And there are probably two layers to it, though. So at first glance, it's this sort of this general observation about life. At second glance, though, it's a specific complaint that the exiles were making about how things had turned out for them. They believed that they were being punished for the sins of their fathers, of their ancestors. And so fundamentally, actually, it was a complaint about this perceived injustice. Now, I have kids... Uh, in case you haven't heard them, uh, at every single significant developmental stage from zero through seven. And they, all of them, have already or are in the process of learning two basic human instincts. One, it's not my fault. Two, it's not fair. And as Israel suffered the discipline of God in exile, their first response was, it's not our fault. Which led to, God, it's not fair. And these beliefs had crystallised into this popular proverb that the parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And actually, the essence of it may be traced all the way back to Genesis 3, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, when humanity first learned to blame somebody else and or Blame God. Anything but accept personal responsibility. 
Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because it is. Like, we, we don't grow out of it. We don't grow out of it. We're not to blame. It's always someone else's fault. Directly or indirectly. But this proverb was an enormous stumbling block between God and his people, between, between God and his people and the relationship between God and his people. And see, he wants to unravel it and debunk it and instead replace it with a sound theology of personal responsibility. And so he goes on in verses 3 and 4, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel, for everyone belongs to me, the parent as well as the child. Both alike belong to me, the one who sins is the one who will die. And so the message is this, every individual belongs to God and each person is free to choose their own destiny. And the question is this, what is your relationship to God? I think it's important to just take a minute to consider the, the, the question of so-called generational sin uh, because you might be wondering if there is a discrepancy between this message in Ezekiel 18 and uh, what you may read elsewhere in the scriptures. For example, Exodus 20, where we read this. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or on the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for, for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And so in Ezekiel's day, these verses uh, had been taken uh, to effectively accuse God of being unjust. But it just needs to be put out there that actually this is a misunderstanding, a misinterpretation of these uh, verses, which actually were intended to, warn, intended to warn adults, particularly parents, that their... Um, their actions, their lives have consequences, sometimes for the next generation and for the generation even after that. So if, for example, um, parents did turn away from God and start worshipping idols, well, then their children and their grandchildren would actually likely follow suit. And so the whole family, which could include up to, to four generations of living relatives, would actually... Uh, become infected, if you will, by idolatry. But to be clear, God doesn't punish one person for another person's sin. There is a difference between um, there's a difference between condemnation and consequence. See that there's a difference between condemnation and consequence. But let me just say this: if the children or the grandchildren are being punished, it is not because of the sin of their parents or their grandparents, it is because they followed in their footsteps. And so the key question remains, what is your relationship with God? And God affirms, doesn't he, in Ezekiel 18, this notion of personal responsibility. And so he illustrates this with um, a three-generation case study. So you have the righteous patriarch, you have the wicked son and then you have the righteous grandson. And so the grandfather is this righteous man who does what is just and right. And God concludes in verse 9, that man is righteous, he will surely live. His son, however, is violent and sheds blood. And God asks in verse 13, will such a man live? He will not 
because he's done all these detestable things, he's to be put to death, his blood will be on his own head. But then in verse 14, but suppose this son has a son. So this is the grandson who sees all the sins his father commits and though he sees them, he does not do such things. Verse 17, he will not die for his father's sins. He will surely live. Now, what is the point of all of this? Well, it illustrates, doesn't it, that the one who sins is the one who, who dies. Which also means that if the exiles are being punished, it is not because of the sin of their parents or their grandparents, but because they followed in their parents' footsteps. You see, if asked, they would have imagined themselves to be the righteous grandson. who had a wicked father. They didn't deserve this. Their fathers deserved this. But Ezekiel says, no, no, no. You are actually the wicked father, suffering the penalty of your own sins. And the message of Ezekiel 18 is that every generation, every individual needs to take responsibility for their own sin. And you can sense that perhaps at this point, Ezekiel's audience, some of Ezekiel's audience may have softened a little bit. Uh, but actually, some of Ezekiel's audience begins to argue back and so uh, in verse 19, yet you ask, why does his son not share in the guilt of his father? And then again in verse 25, yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. So in other words, it's not fair. But did you notice in the reading what they're arguing, <laughs> what's not fair according to them? According to them, neither the mercy of God nor the judgment of God is fair. So the second half of verse 18, uh, God says effectively that if a wicked person turns from his ways, they'll be forgiven and live. And yet equally, if a righteous person turns to evil, they'll be punished. Turns out God is radically consistent. Radically consistent when it comes to compassion and judgment. But it's just not fair that people should be forgiven when they repent, is it? And for those who have a sense of self-righteousness, it's actually offensive. Well, they were right in one way, weren't they? It wasn't fair. Mercy is not justice. But they better believe it because they were actually the ones who needed mercy. In Ezekiel 18, we have this beautiful expression of God's sovereignty on the one hand, and human responsibility on the other hand. See, God offers everyone the choice to change. And that is both liberating and challenging. It is liberating because your past does not determine your future. That's liberating, isn't it? It's challenging because your past does not determine your future. That's challenging, isn't it? The wicked may become righteous, the righteous may become wicked. The wicked may repent, but the righteous cannot be complacent and treat their relationship with God as some divine insurance policy against their sins. That was a tragic error of many a generation of Israelites and of this generation in exile. And unfortunately, that is a tragic error of many Christians nowadays. Watch yourselves, warned Moses. Watch and pray that you'll not fall into temptation, warned Jesus. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall, warned Paul. See, see we, just ne we never grow beyond the need to continue 
making the decision to trust and obey. We don't grow beyond that. Having begun the race, we need to finish it. Salvation is not a matter of just storing up enough good to outweigh the bad. It is a matter of repentance, genuine repentance. And so these last two verses are worth reading in full. Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all your offences. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offences you've committed and get a new heart and new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? And one, Perhaps one of the most profound verses in Ezekiel. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. God urges that the present generation in exile to actually take responsibility for their own sin, to repent and to seek righteousness and justice. Because without repentance, there can be no forgiveness. And without the acceptance of responsibility, there can actually be no true repentance. Some time ago, I was having coffee with a, a young Christian fella at Mountain Brew, actually. Uh, and he was sharing his Christian story. And it was very unusual and very dramatic. And he must have been talking for about half an hour before a middle-aged lady who had her back uh, turned to us on a, on a different table, uh, turned around and apologised, but she just couldn't help overhearing our conversation. Uh, see, she, she resonated with some of what this young man was sharing. And so she shared some of her experiences with the Christians, uh, with, with Christians and with the church. But it soon became very clear that she didn't actually know the gospel. And so I asked her if I could share it. And uh, she, she was all too happy. In fact, she was very polite. But she just couldn't fathom the concept of sin. And that sin offends, let alone God. And she expressed a version of those two basic human instincts. It's not my fault. It's not fair. She was, at least at that point, never going to accept personal responsibility. But without accepting responsibility, there can be no true repentance. And without repentance, there can be no forgiveness. That makes sense, doesn't it? God urges the present generation in exile to take responsibility for their own sin, to repent and to seek righteousness and justice. But ultimately, did you notice that this is going to require a whole new attitude, a whole new mindset, virtually a new person within. And so, in short, they actually have to receive a new heart and, and a new spirit. And this new heart and new spirit, notice, is something that Israel must get. But actually, ultimately, it's only something that God can give. So we're going to come back to that a little later on in Ezekiel. But for now, the question is urgent. Why will you die, O people of Israel? You don't have to. God doesn't want you to. Repent and live. One of the stumbling blocks to us taking to heart passages such as these, not only Ezekiel 18, but passages such as these, particularly if they're in the Old Testament, is that word righteousness. 
And what that word righteousness means here in Ezekiel 18, as opposed to, say, in Romans. See, Old Testament righteousness, Ezekiel 18 righteousness, does not mean moral perfection. But it certainly implies moral commitment. It does not mean moral perfection, but it certainly implies moral commitment. It is a characteristic of the person who, remembering God's redeeming love in bringing them out of Egypt, takes seriously the command to love the Lord our God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. It is a term of allegiance. It is a term of obligation, not of achievement. People are not saved who keep the law, but people who are saved keep the law. Because ultimately, we know, both the Old Testament and the, and the New Testament attest to this, that no one is righteous in God's sight, right? Not even one. Psalm 14 and Romans 3. I was watching a Lance Armstrong documentary uh, on Disney Plus recently. Uh, Lance Armstrong, for those of you who don't know, uh, was a professional road racing cyclist who won the Tour de France seven consecutive times between 1999 and 2005. And that was off the back of recovering from cancer. However, he was eventually stripped of them after a doping investigation and his admission to using performance enhancing drugs. That is what he's going to be remembered for, isn't it? However, he also did a lot of good through his foundation, Livestrong, that supports uh, people with, uh, affected by, by cancer. And, and so in the documentary, one commentator said this. He said, I don't even know where the line is anymore between good people who do bad things and bad people who do good things. God's point is this. No one is good. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And this truth is at the very heart of the gospel because without accepting personal responsibility for your sins. There can be no true repentance and without repentance there can be no forgiveness. It doesn't matter who your parents were or were not. What is your relationship to God? But Ezekiel 18 insists, doesn't it, that God desires everyone to come to repentance. That's, that's God's desire. And friends, when, when we do, a beautiful thing happens. An astounding thing happens. When we do, we are actually declared righteous. We are, de we are declared righteous in Jesus Christ, the Righteous one. And this is a term of achievement. But it is he who has achieved it, not us. 
That is what the law and the prophets testify to, a righteousness that is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What is your relationship with with God? Now, a word to fathers on Father's Day, or fathers-to-be, or grandfathers. Our kids are going to be held responsible for their own choices. We need, to, we need to just put that out there, don't we? They're going to be held responsible for their own choices. However, that does not relieve us of the responsibility that God gives to parents, in particular fathers, to raise your kids to know and love Jesus. See, God does work powerfully through the witness of one generation to the next. I can testify to that. Many of you can testify to that. But the warning is that it goes both ways. That's, that's the warning. It, it goes both ways. Don Carson once put it this way. One generation believes something. The next assumes it. And the third will forget and deny it. I know families whom I can, I can trace that with. We must be intentional in discipling our kids. Dads, granddads. We must be intentional in discipling our kids and your grandkids. And here is the key to discipleship. Here's the key to discipleship. And it comes just before that verse that I've quoted a few times now in our series in Ezekiel. It comes in 2 Timothy. When, God, when, when Paul writes to his protege, Timothy, he says, But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Key to discipleship is God's revelation of himself in his word. And fathers, grandfathers, we will fail. We will fail. I can think of moments this past week where I have failed. But that does not relieve us of our responsibility. Our responsibility remains to watch our life and our doctrine closely and to hold on to and hold out the hope that is found in Christ Jesus. A preacher once shared a message that his dad had written in the front, of, the front cover of uh, 
a Bible that his parents had given him when he graduated high school. He's a 17, 18-year-old. And this is what his dad wrote. Nothing could be greater than to have a son, a son who loves the Lord and walks with him. Your mother and I have found this book our dearest treasure. And we give it to you, and in doing so, can give nothing greater. Be a student of the Bible, and your life will be full of blessing. We love you, Dad. Kids need to hear that from their dads. Have your kids heard that from you? Let me pray. Father, we want to take a moment to confess our sins. For we have sinned against you in thought and in word and in deed and in what we have failed to do. Father, we deserve your condemnation. If you kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. May we ourselves come to you, accepting responsibility, repenting, seeking forgiveness. May our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren come to know and trust and love and serve the Lord Jesus. And may you, despite our weaknesses and even through our weaknesses, use us to this end. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.